It's Thursday, August 18th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, could a century-old vaccine help protect against future epidemics? Plus, it turns out our oldest ancestor is not a half a billion-year-old sea creature with a mouth and no butt. And next month, the first Native American woman will be going to space. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. In 1921, French scientists developed a tuberculosis vaccine. Adopted that decade by the World Health Organization's predecessor, it wasn't widely used until after World War II. However, since then, it's been given to about 100 million children around the world every year, because in addition to protecting against tuberculosis, it's also used to generally protect against a number of other diseases. The Bacillus Calmet-Guerin, or BCG, vaccine is now renewing hope that it could be deployed as an effective vaccine against COVID-19 or even unknown future pathogens. A new paper published Monday in the journal Cell Reports Medicine showed incredible efficacy from the BCG vaccine on participants with type 1 diabetes in particular, people who are highly susceptible to various infections. The BCG trial on this group actually began before COVID-19 emerged, but once the pandemic began, the researchers worked with an independent group to monitor COVID infections among the participants. The trial included 144 people, and of the 96 who actually received the BCG vaccine instead of a placebo, only one of them got COVID, compared to the six with placebo shots who got it. Now, of course, that was one small study, but as lead author Dr. Denise Faustman told the New York Times, those results are as dramatic as for the Moderna and Pfizer mRNA vaccines. And it wasn't just COVID that the BCG vaccine worked on. That wasn't even the initial point of the study. Participants also saw a major decrease in bladder, sinus, and respiratory tract infections, as well as less flu and fewer colds. A separate BCG vaccine study, whose results were published last month, had similar results. 300 older Greek adults with pre-existing heart or lung disease participated. Two who received the vaccine were hospitalized, compared to six who got the placebo. But other studies have had much less promising results. A Dutch study of 1,500 healthcare workers and a South African study of 1,000 healthcare workers both found no reduction in COVID infections among those given the BCG vaccine. The largest ever trial of the BCG vaccine, an international study of 10,000 healthcare workers, is ongoing. Now, the broad-ranging efficacy of BCG is apparently a point of slight controversy in the field. Chief investigator of the large ongoing trial, Dr. Nigel Curtis, said, quote, "...nobody argues that there are off-target effects." But how profound is that, and does it translate to a clinical effect? And is it confined to neonates, whose immune systems are more susceptible? These are very different questions. End quote. And one reason some studies may have such vastly different results, according to the New York Times, is that there are different strains of the live attenuated bacterium the vaccine is composed of, and the number of doses a person receives can also affect outcomes. Dr. Faustman, who ran the most recent study on participants with type 1 diabetes, used the most potent strain with several doses, and the participants had ample time for the vaccine to reach maximal effect before the COVID-19 pandemic really kicked off. 
But in any case, scientists working on the BCG vaccine aren't hoping to find another COVID-19 vaccine anymore. When studies were ongoing in early 2020, that was certainly a goal. But now with so many effective COVID vaccines out there, COVID is functioning more as a case study in their research. The larger aim is determining if the BCG vaccine could be a first line of defense in future pandemics. You know, even if we don't know what the future pandemic would be, if we have a vaccine that generally gives immune systems a boost and can protect at least a little, or at least protect some of the most vulnerable immunocompromised folks, until a more specific vaccine is developed, that could save a lot of lives. Dr. Mihai Natea, co-principal author of the July study, told the New York Times, quote, If we had known this at the very beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, we would have been able to obtain a large protective effect on the population during the first year of the pandemic, end quote. And chairman and co-founder of the Open Source Pharma Foundation, Jaikumar Manan, said, quote, Imagine if we could use existing vaccines to curb pandemics. That would change world history. End quote. BCG isn't our only hope on that front. Other vaccines have effects on the immune system as well. And given everything we've learned during this pandemic, more and more scientists are interested in the idea of broader, more universal vaccines. In that vein, a number of teams have been studying the possibility of a vaccine that would protect against all SARS-CoV-2 variants, and some that are even trying to protect against all coronaviruses, meaning even the common cold. I've shared a few of these in the past, but earlier this week, Harvard Medical School shared progress on just such a study. Publishing their findings in Science Immunology last week, the team from Harvard, along with Boston Children's Hospital, developed an antibody that neutralized all currently known SARS-CoV-2 variants of concern. The team used a mouse model they created for other research the lab has done on broadly neutralizing antibodies to HIV, which basically has a built-in human immune system. So the team inserted two human gene segments into the mice and then exposed them to SARS-CoV-2 and then tested the efficacy of those antibodies they developed. One strain, SP177, effectively neutralized alpha, beta, gamma, delta, and all Omicron strains. And what makes SP177 unique is that instead of blocking SARS-CoV-2 from binding to ACE2 receptors, like the antibodies we make in response to vaccines do, it blocks the step after that, which leads to infection. So it actually does allow binding to ACE2 receptors, but SP177 prevents it from fusing its outer membrane with the membrane of our cells. This will still need to be tested on humans for safety and efficacy, but if it works successfully, we could see a much stronger, broader COVID treatment that works on potentially any variant that emerges in the future. Five years ago, an international team of researchers discovered a 540-million-year-old sack-like creature. A millimeter in size, it lived between grains of sand on the seabed. It had a mouth, but no butt. Meaning, as the BBC put it back in 2017, quote, that suggests it consumed food and excreted from the same orifice, end quote. This delightful creature was declared to be the earliest ancestor of humans. And not just because of that excellent metaphor for our current species, but because it was cast into a primitive category of animals, deuterostomes, which are common ancestors of a bunch of species, including vertebrates, aka including us humans. 
But this half-a-billion-year-old marine creature, which The Guardian refers to as an angry minion with no anus, has been declared by a recent study to not be one of our ancestors. One less relative to be embarrassed about, The Guardian quips. So, this new study, published yesterday in the journal Nature, has declared that this ancient creature, rather than being a deuterostome, should actually be classified as an ectozoan, an ancestor of spiders, crustaceans, and insects, rather than of our lineage of vertebrates. The reclassification lies in new observations from more powerful x-rays, hundreds of additional specimens, and the creation of 3D models. So, this creature, the Saccharitis coronarius, was previously thought to have pores for gills around its mouth, a feature of deuterostomes. But using the new x-rays, the team determined the holes present around the mouth were actually the base of spines, or teeth, that had snapped off. And this adds up with the theory that the creature kind of just sat in one place all the time, and that these spines would have held it in place. Further, as co-author of the more recent study Philip Donahue explained to The Guardian, there are better preserved specimens of deuterostomes than this half-a-billion-year-old specimen, and those better specimens indicated how off-the-mark the sea creature's original classification was. Donahue cautions, however, that the team doesn't yet know exactly where the creature fits in among ectocizoans, so some mystery remains. And not surprisingly, the lack of anus of the creature is still the most intriguing mystery to folks. Quoting the BBC, Emily Carlyle, a researcher who studied saccharitis in detail, explained to BBC Radio 4's Inside Science, It's a bit confusing. Most ectocizoans have an anus, so why didn't this one? One intriguing option, she said, is that an even earlier ancestor of this whole group did not have an anus, and that the saccharitis evolved after that. It could be that it lost it during its own evolution. Perhaps it didn't need one because it could just sit in one spot with one opening for everything. End quote. Charming. But fascinating. Donahue says the search for our earliest human ancestor will continue, and notes that our understanding of deuterostome lineage is, quote, an absolute mess. But messes, like mysteries, can be fun to uncover. And as Carlyle said to the BBC, quote, The more I study paleontology, the more I realize how much is missing. In terms of this creature and the world it lived in, we're really just scratching the surface. End quote. And that is a super true observation that I always feel even more strongly anytime we investigate the far depths of our oceans. I've been hyping up the uncrewed Artemis 1 return to the moon a lot recently, but beyond the launch of the new lunar program, operations continue to march steadily on at NASA and other public and private space agencies around the world. Just one month after Artemis 1 blasts off on its exploratory mission, a new crew will be headed to the International Space Station aboard a SpaceX Dragon spacecraft, the fifth crew rotation mission for SpaceX. Notable on this particular mission is Commander Nicole Onapu Mann, who will become the first Native American woman in space. Mann is an enrolled member of the Wailaki of Round Valley Indian Tribes and joined NASA in 2013, after attending Stanford and becoming a colonel in the Marine Corps, flying aircraft carriers supporting combat operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. 
The first Native American person to go to space was John Harrington of the Chickasaw Nation back in 2002. He was also the first Native American person to complete a spacewalk, an achievement commemorated on the back of the 2019 Native American dollar coin. Man, I believe, will be the first Native American commander of a space mission. And as one of 18 astronauts selected at the end of 2020 for the Artemis team, there is a chance she could be selected as the first woman to go to the moon in 2026. Even if not, though, she'll be involved in the lunar program in some capacity and making history next month with her first trip to space. Man told Indian Country Today, quote, it's very exciting, and I think it's important that we communicate this to our community so that other Native kids, if they thought maybe this was not a possibility, or to realize that some of those barriers that used to be there are really starting to get broken down, end quote. Mann says she is most excited to do a spacewalk and also to work on the ISS's biofabrication facility, which is 3D printing human cells with the ultimate goal of one day printing human organs. According to Mann, the force of gravity on Earth makes printing and growing cells difficult, so the biofabrication facility on the ISS prints experimental cells that are delivered back to Earth for analysis. Wild. Joining Mann on the upcoming flight to the ISS will be fellow NASA astronaut pilot Josh Kasada, along with Kochi Wakata from the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency and Anna Kakina from Roscosmos. Man will lead all phases of the flight as mission commander and then serve as flight engineer on board the space station. And one day, she will perhaps go to the moon. Following in the tradition of Pirates of the Caribbean, Jungle Cruise, and more, Disney has just announced the latest upcoming movie based on one of its theme park rides, Big Thunder Mountain. The roller coaster ride, which first opened at Disneyland in 1979, is a gold rush-themed ride that takes place in a mining town. The background story for the ride varies a little at each theme park, but the basic idea is a discovery of gold on Big Thunder Mountain turned the surrounding area into a boom town. But before long, it was realized that the mountain was on sacred Native American land, and the desecration of that land led to natural disaster, different in each park, tsunamis, earthquakes, that kind of thing, and the eventual abandonment of the mining town. But the locomotives in the ghost town kept on moving without human drivers. Now, given that backstory, this is an adaptation that could easily tumble into a problematic pitfall. Deadline, however, has just announced that the project will be helmed by directing duo Bert and Birdie. Fresh off winning the mouse's good graces with their directing skills on Disney Plus's Hawkeye series. As Gizmodo put it, quote, Bert and Birdie covered satirical takes on period pieces in The Great and Our Flag Means Death, two shows which take past eras and infuse them with hilarious interpretations, not just through story, but visually. That's definitely going to be something that a pioneer-centered tale, which Big Thunder Mountain will likely be, needs. End quote. No plot details or release dates are yet known. You know, of the list of Disney theme park rides turned movies, I feel like Pirates of the Caribbean is the only one that's really had standout and lasting success. I mean, Tomorrowland, anyone? Pirates became so massive that us middle-of-the-country suburban kids who had never been to Disneyland didn't even know it was a Disney theme park ride. To us, it was just a movie. So we'll see if 
if Bert and Bertie can break the curse with a real winner instead of a flop. And I personally love a good self-aware take on the Wild West. Anyone else watch the most recent season of Miracle Workers that took place on the Oregon Trail? Strong recommend if that's your thing. Or honestly, even if it isn't. But that's going to be it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.